Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Stepping Out. I've been out and about quite a lot lately and it's been a great mix of weather too, I can tell you. Pandemic check, we are now allowed to meet with six people outside, can sit outside pubs and restaurants and in the UK we've doled out just over 50 million vaccinations. However, we are lucky because as you know there are many countries such as India who don't have a brilliant vaccination programme and are running out of those and vital oxygen supplies and when one country is at risk we're all at risk. You can play your part and help UNICEF deliver two billion vaccines as well as millions of treatments around the world this year. So I have put the link in the episode description for you to donate a few quid to if you can. Once you do donate, we need to get the world talking. So whether it's sharing your donation, organising some fundraising or just spreading the word, make some noise for vaccine aid. It will be one of the best things you ever do. We're all people and we're all in this together. Okay, on with the show and to today's guest. And today I spoke to Guy Tal. So all immediate response is, is, is subconscious, but then you start to think consciously and to put yourself in, in this mindful state of trying to get as many of these dimensions of the experience together, both for the fullness of your own experience and so you can later distill out of it something visual that you can communicate to people. A bit about Guy. He was born in Israel, and after recreating himself in different places, doing different things, he decided to settle in Torrey, Utah, in the US of A. He's been a soldier, a university teacher, a software developer, and a technology manager, amongst other things, before settling into the life of a full-time photographer, writer, speaker, teacher, and desert wanderer. He has two books out there, More Than a Rock, a deeper look at the creativity, art, expression, craft, and philosophy of landscape photography, The Landscape Photographer's Guide to Photoshop, and his latest book coming out this year is called Another Day Not Wasted. Love that title. And this is a reflection book about the years after his unfulfilling career and his deeper insights into life as an independent artist, his thoughts about photography as a form of art and as a means to a richer and more rewarding life, and his intimate relationship with nature and with his beloved desert, the Colorado Plateau. He's all about the expression and philosophy behind a photograph, mainly of rock formations, trees and plants captured perfectly, and he brings into life his vision for each shot. His pictures are truly beautiful and they're all proof of that brilliant nature out there. We talk about his photography, of course, and his writing, but also about his long distance hiking and backpacking to get where he needs to be. So grab some form of footwear and some headphones and off we'll go. Hi, Guy. Thanks for joining me on Stepping Out. It's really good to have you on. Thank you for having me, Kaz. My pleasure. Great. Um, Right. Firstly, I'd like to get right into asking you about where you live, because my mouth fell open a bit when you told me that there is not a traffic light in sight in an area over four times the size of London. So can you tell me about your surroundings, please? Uh, yeah, that uh, that is true. Actually, I'll give you another interesting factoid is uh, my house is uh, literally closer to outer space than to the nearest city. No. Um, yes, I, I live in a very, very rural part of the state of Utah in the United States, uh, just outside a place called Capitol Reef National Park. Uh, it's in a larger general area known as the Colorado River Plateau, and it's a, it's a high desert environment. It's extremely scenic, very sparsely populated. Wow, that sounds amazing and fantastic for what you do. 
But I'm going to ask you as well, first of all, um, about your life before what you're doing now, because you were born in Israel, where I also lived actually for a while, but you decided that a remote desert town was the place for you ultimately. And I'm so pleased because your shots of the landscape there are simply incredible. So tell me, why did you decide to settle where you are now? Uh, I wouldn't say it was so much a, a decision as, as a process. I've always been pretty pretty restless. I've always felt like I had to keep moving through life until I found a life that was satisfying to me. So yes, I was born in Israel. I lived there for 26 years. I served in the military. I taught at the Tel Aviv University. Uh, and then uh, the internet came about. I was able to get a job uh, doing uh, technology work in Silicon Valley in California. Mm. I moved there for several years, um, and then I met my wife. We were married there. Uh, I became very dissatisfied with a, a very materialistic, material-driven life, and um, we decided we wanted to do something more meaningful with our lives. We're both nature lovers. We wanted to move closer to a natural area. So uh, we traveled around a bit, and we decided that we narrowed the, the list down to several places where we wanted to live, and uh, she wanted to go to law school and become an environmental lawyer. I wanted to to pursue a career as an artist and as a writer. And it just happened that we were able to do both in Utah, originally in Salt Lake City. Uh, and uh, as I was going through that process, I kept exploring different areas of the American West and just falling in love with different landscapes. And I guess I just always had this affinity for desert environments. That's where I feel most at home and most comfortable. And so uh, as soon as I discovered the, this area, the Colorado Plateau, more probably more than half of my life now, um, I just kept coming back over and over despite having so many other opportunities. This is the place that just always called out to me. It just got under my skin. I was dreaming about it at night. And finally, we decided uh, it was time to make the big move. And, you know, in order to make our lives meaningful, this is what we needed to do. So we found this uh, tiny little desert town in this beautiful scenic area. And uh, we decided we were going to give it a try. We didn't even know if we could make it, if we could earn a living. But uh, today, years later, we're both working from home. Uh, I can pursue my art and my writing full time. So uh, it, it worked out, but it was uh, it was quite a journey. Mm, that sounds incredible. And your office now looks pretty impressive to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was really thinking about the landscapes that you that you take photographs of, because um, obviously a lot trees and rocks seem to feature heavily in your portfolio. Yes, you won't yeah. mind me saying. Um, and I myself love both trees and rocks to look at. I find them so interesting. And they're so different from one another and there's a real sort of juxtaposition between, you know, quite an organic looking tree versus a very sort of solid rock. Um, and they're so creative in their own right. And I love how they grow or form how they like, which is akin to perhaps how we could all be a bit more. So with your previous roles in the corporate world, was this the sort of kind of thinking that drew you away from that world into this kind of life? Uh, not necessarily. I think for me, it was more something that was always in the background because I grew up, when I grew up in Israel, the, the country was mostly empty. And I grew up in the fields, you know, just roaming usually alone with with my dog and just getting to know the natural world. I was always a nature child. And then every chance I got throughout my professional life, I always tried to get away to natural places because that I needed that to balance whatever else was happening in my life. And uh, I, I just I just can't ever get enough of it until finally I decided that I, it had to be, I had to make my life about that. 
that about my experiences in nature. Uh, and so for me, it's first of all about being out and experiencing. And when I say nature, I don't necessarily just mean natural things. I mean, natural environments as, as holistic, multidimensional experiences, just being out in the landscape for days at a time, wandering as far as I can off the trail into places that sometimes people have not visited in you know decades or centuries or at all. Um, and I have all that here, which I'm very grateful mm. for. And as far as uh, trees and rocks, you know, they're, they, they're incredible in their own right. I'm also very scientifically minded. So I like to know how they came to be in some of their natural history. But for me, they're also really powerful metaphors for a lot of things that are on my mind, just the way that they fit into their environment, the forces that form them, the, the way that they respond to their environments. Yeah, absolutely. And you said there about you, you're really into science as well. Is that mm -hmm. mostly nature or are you talking about science of other things, everything? How does that manifest itself for you? Um, I, I think once you start looking at, at science in a multidisciplinary way, you realize that essentially everything is nature, you know, all the way from particle physics to, to human psychology, all of it has some natural relationships, some natural reasons for why it is the way that it is. And for me, it's all fascinating just realizing how the whole big story comes together. Mm, it is. Yeah, I did, a, I did a science degree and everything in it was just so fascinating because obviously mm -hmm. you do so many different subjects within it and they are all interrelated in some way or another. And I think more than anything we've realized that lately um with the whole pandemic yes. situation um yeah absolutely fascinating like you say it does come into everything and nature is full of science i was watching this program the other day about how it was a maths program actually and it was about how nature is formed and it's very scientific in its in its numbers and and the way you know the distances and the measurements of things it was absolutely fascinating so i can understand the connection there yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm very interested in philosophy as well. And, and you might know there there's certain uh, philosophy of science uh, 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 scholars who who believe that math is reality, and we mm -hmm. just perceive it in in various sensory ways. But really, the underlying what we think is the underlying mathematics is not just a way of describing reality, but it is the real reality. Yeah, yeah, completely. That's that came yeah. first before we tried to make any sense of it, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um. But let's talk about your photographs. I absolutely love them. I mean, I just spent ages and ages just scrolling through them. They're so lovely because of the light that you managed to portray in them as you sort of seem to be able to capture, capture the atmosphere of what you're looking at, not just a sort of two-dimensional photograph. And it really comes across that I could almost imagine myself there. Um, your latest book, Another Day Not Wasted, which is just such a great title, is about your view on photography as an art form. And I've always thought that way too, as essentially, I guess, you're painting a picture using what materials you have around you. So what are you aiming to create when you click that shutter? So my, my goal in photography, uh, as an artist, I consider myself a photographic artist, not, not a documentary photographer, not a photographer who's trying to show people things they would have seen on their own, is I want my photographs to be expressive, specifically of, of moods that I feel myself, moods that are inspired by my experiences, by my environment. Uh, and so th this is really what I aim to do, is try to understand how all these different cues, these different visual cues that people are capable of perceiving, shapes, lines, colors, 
uh, patterns, textures, all these things can come together to have emotional connotation. And for me, the, the ability to compose a, a photograph in such a way that it is expressive, that the viewer would feel something of my experience, or at least hopefully would, uh, would stir something in them that is beyond just recognizing the thing that they look at, they're looking at. So for me, that, that is the essence of, of what I hope to do in, in my photography. Yeah. I mean, you must come across some landscapes or turn a corner or whatever and, and just stand there in complete awe. Um, I mean, everybody after listening to this just has to go to the website and have a look at these photographs because they're incredible. Um, how, I mean, do you have moments where you are just kind of completely stunned and you have to just stand there and take it all in first or do you get right into it and just start setting up and snapping away how does that work for you no so so for me i'm, I'm not very reactive in my work is i i, I try to have a relationship with the places that I photograph. So I, I very, you know, m most, the great majority of what I do is within about a hundred miles of where I live. And these are places that I go back to over and over and over again to get to know them, them well. I know every plant and animal by name. I know when things are, what they're supposed to be, when things are unusual. So for me, if I have this experience of awe, which which happens very, very, uh, I wouldn't say very frequently, but happens as a matter of course for me, mm. my first reaction is not necessarily to reach for the camera. I want to savor the experience first. Uh, when I do make a photograph, it's after I've had that initial reaction. It's after I've had time to think about how I can channel some of that feeling into a photograph and what in my environment I could use. So for me, it's a very conscious process. So the initial reaction for me is first, first stops me in my tracks and I want to experience the fullness of that that moment, the fullness of the experience, the, the wonder of what it is that just presented itself to me. The photograph comes second or not at all. Yeah, yeah, I can completely understand that. Yeah, I often have that moment where I'm, I almost feel like sometimes to take your phone out or in your case, your, you know, your camera equipment, mm -hmm. it's straight away and take a picture, it almost takes something away from it. Um, you want to take that picture away with you, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I bring it into my mind first and, and let that kind of seep in. So I completely understand that. And I guess also, it allows you to look at different angles and think about, like I said, the atmosphere of what you're going to take as well. So yeah, really useful to be able to stand there. Plus you get to take nature in for yourself as a memory mm -hmm. as well, don't you? So that's really nice. So talk me through your book then a little bit more. So another day not wasted. What, what can readers expect from that? So that, that book is actually coming out later this year. My previous book is called More Than a Rock, which is based on a, it's a very similar theme to both these books. There are books of essays about my experiences as a photographer. And some of them are, are, are aimed at fellow photographers, you know, how, how to get the most out of your experience as a photographer. But the big parts of them are about my personal philosophy of life, of art, of creativity, of being in nature, of finding meaning in life through these experiences in nature. Uh, so those are the things people can expect. And the book is not technical at all. You will not find any instructions there about how to use a camera. It's all about experiencing nature and in some cases, how to express it in photographs. Um, but for me, a, a big part of, of photography is the creative aspect. It's not just encountering something beautiful and making a beautiful photograph of it. Uh, to me, that's just stopped being exciting. You know, within a few years of me practicing photography, I've been doing this for 30 years now or more. Uh, so that creative aspect means, okay, well, once you have assimilated that experience, once you have enough familiarity, both with the expressive powers of photography and with the environment that you're working with, how do you marry all these things into this 
composition that expresses something, uh, not not just not just external views, but also some of your inner experience. Yeah. I mean, what goes through your mind as well when you're setting that up? You know, you talk about the expression and the philosophy and the craft and and that's a lot in there to pack, mm -hmm. you know, into yes. your photographs. So how, what What's the sort of process? I mean, obviously, in every case, it's going to be slightly different because you're looking yeah. at something different. But what's the process that you go through for that? Well, the thing that for me ties it all together is is mindfulness. It's it's being consciously aware of as many dimensions of your experience as you can, not just what you're looking at, but also all the sensation, everything that you see, everything that you hear, the the, the feeling of the, the breeze on your skin, the bird songs in the air, all of this gets funneled somehow into the photograph. So it's really a process of distillation. But before you can distill that experience into a photograph, you have to first be consciously aware of it. So all immediate response is, is is subconscious but then you start to think consciously and to put yourself in, in this mindful state of trying to get as many of these dimensions of the experience together both for the fullness of your own experience and so you can later distill out of it something visual that you can communicate to people so yeah there is a lot that goes into it but then if you're not mindful, if you're not consciously aware of it, a lot of it, you might not even recognize it was happening. So for me, that process of mindfulness and training in mindfulness and doing some meditation and being very aware and present of where I am helps me be cognizant, helps me consciously pay attention to all these different aspects of my experience. And for me, it makes my life richer first and foremost. Uh, but then that also gives me this huge array of ingredients that I can combine together into visual compositions. Hmm. And I was reading actually one of your blogs about mindfulness as being defined in simplistic terms. And I love this. It's bringing one's attention to qualities of the present moment is as much mm -hmm. a therapy for injuries already sustained as it is a weapon in the battle for the freedom to own one's experience. So mm -hmm. that is such a thoughtful and I think true statement. But what does mindfulness look like for you? How do you ensure that you deliver it to yourself on a regular basis? Uh, so mindfulness is is not just something that if you know what it is, you can just start practicing it from day one. It requires some fairly rigorous training of, you know, on occasion, <clears throat> on a regular basis, finding time to just sit down and be quiet and mindful and to try to assimilate, be be consciously mindful of as many things that are happening to you at the time, not, not just things in your environment, but also things that are happening within you, emotions that you might be feeling, thoughts that might bubble into your head. There's a lot of things that would distract you from your current experience if you're ruminating on things the, the the experience of the moment is not just what's happening right now it's also what you bring into the moment with you and sometimes some of those things are not necessarily things that improve your experience so once you own your consciousness once you own your attention you can say you know right now this thought that's been troubling me for the last couple of hours i'm going to set that aside and i'm not going to pay attention to it because there are more rewarding things happening at this moment mm -hmm. um, the best way to practice mindfulness is, is meditation, uh, specifically mindfulness meditation. Uh, there's a particular kind of meditation called Vipassana, which is focused on that. But uh, some people are just averse to meditation just as a, just as a way of, of life. It seems to have all kinds of uh, you know quasi-spiritual connotations. So I, I like to tell people that it's really not about any kind of Eastern mythology or philosophy or any religious practice. It's really about finding ways of bringing your attention, taking control control of your attention, recognizing what's bubbling up in your head and having the power to decide what you want to focus attention on and what you want to focus attention away from. And you can accomplish that
that in several different ways. So for example, for photographers, I recommend this uh, exercise called a visual inventory. So if you go to a place and you don't want to sit down and meditate with your eyes closed or the lotus position or whatever it is, make yourself comfortable and start looking around and list to yourself in your mind as many things as you're seeing, as many things as you're feeling, as many things having to do with your experience, because those are things that you could literally then use in a photograph. And you're really meditating without really calling it meditation, uh, but it has a similar effect. Yeah, almost a focus more than a meditation as such. I feel like that when I'm walking. So it's, I always call it meditation on the move. I think I've mentioned this so many times now, but it really is because obviously my eyes are not closed. I'm not sitting down with my legs crossed or anything like that. Um, but when I'm outside in nature, for me, it's already meditation because, yeah. you know, you're kind of in that environment. and. Um, but you you said, actually, we, this is really interesting. You said when you take a photograph, you're not offering testimony to the existence of something. You are bringing something into existence, something mm -hmm. that did not exist before and that would not exist if it were not for you. Now, that's a really powerful statement for me because mm -hmm. you're saying that you are the creative spark behind it and you're not just capturing what you see, if I've got that correctly. You did, yes. Can you elaborate a bit more on what you mean by that? Yes, and I think that that is a, a common misconception about photography is that it's it's strictly a, a mechanical way of recording appearances. There is really a, quite a bit of range of motion in what you can express in a photograph. Uh, the primary, I would call it tool, the, the primary thing that you have, just like a painter would have their palette and their brushes and their canvas, the primary tool that you have is visual composition, is how to arrange things in your environment into a coherent composition within the frame. Uh, and that really comes down to, to for me, uh, three specific things. Is one is the frame itself, what's in the frame, what's out of the frame. Then there is something called perspective, which is the relationship, the spatial relationship with the T, the relationship in space between where you are and where your subject is. Where you choose to stand can determine what's in and what's out, what is larger, smaller than other things, what things get smushed together and what things get pulled apart. So there's a very deliberate cognitive process to arranging things within the frame that involves a lot of creativity. Uh, and in fact, because you are bound by things that are in your environment, which is often chaotic and disorganized, it's it's finding this configuration that works uh, is a very powerful exercise. And you know, sometimes if if it might be a, a prolonged, sometimes even a frustrating exercise because nature doesn't always co cooperate with what you have in mind. So for me, that is that is the essence of creative photography. Beyond that, there's obviously different processing techniques, and there's a lot of uh, contention in photography about the ethics of what is okay or not okay to do to a photograph. Uh, but for me, that is a very far secondary concern because when I'm in the field, I visualize things in my mind. I know what I want at the end. I know how to arrange my composition. And so for me, the processing step later doesn't involve anything extreme. It's really about placing emphasis where I want it. Mm. Yeah, and with all of that going on, because obviously there's a whole load of stuff happening there and you've got all the equipment and everything else, when do you get the chance after you have the photograph to look at when do you go back and have a look at them and just say wow that is amazing do you often go back through your portfolio and, and just kind of have a bit of a browse uh yes yeah, so some I'm a, I'm a bit of a pack rat is I, I don't throw anything away and usually i would come back with a, a very 
a very good idea of what I want and know exactly what I what I have, you know, in, in my on my card today or on film in the, in the older days. Uh, but every now and then I will just go into my my archives. I'll do an archive dive or, a, you know, a more <laughs> more a funnier term that some photographers use is I'll go dumpster diving uh, and I'll, I'll find things that I did not think to process before uh, because, you know, I, I have changed as a person, the kind of things that I notice have changed, uh, my skills have improved, hopefully my equipment, my technique, my tools have improved. So almost every time when I have the time to go through my archives, I find things that I didn't think to process before and I, I find some gems in there. Uh, so yeah, so it's almost uh, it's almost like the, the gift that keeps on giving because obviously the, the bulk of, of the, the value for me is being out in the field, experiencing uh, the things that I photograph. Then comes the making of the photograph or the creative process of making a photograph and then coming home and making a, realizing it into something that I can share with other people. And then possibly years later, I might go back and discover other aspects of that experience that didn't even occur to me at the time that I can do something with. Yeah. And that processing, I mean, is that a very kind of centering thing for you? Is, is that almost a form of meditation? You know, you're in there and you're really focusing. Because I know if I'm doing anything like that, where I'm really pulling something apart, like editing, for example, mm -hmm. I really kind of go inside myself. Is that what happens to you when you're processing the photographs? Absolutely. And, and it comes down to attitude. I mean, it, it, you, if you think of it as a chore, it will be a chore. But if you think about it as a creative experience where, okay, I'm just going to set aside plenty of time to do it. And I'm going to study everything carefully. And I'm going to immerse myself in what I'm doing. And, you know, maybe have some nice music in the background and maybe, you know, have a little beverage on the side. Uh, it becomes, uh, for me, a much more, like a, we keep going back to that word, a meditative experience of, of creating something, of being immersed in an activity. And that produces that effect of, of flow uh, that is so powerful. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. For me, whatever I do, I, I try to invest as much attention as I can into it, hoping to accomplish that, that state of flow, which is so rewarding. Yeah, I know. I've talked to a few people about flow recently. It's fun. It keeps coming mm -hmm. up. And um, because that is really when you're, when time just doesn't exist, you know, when you're in something mm -hmm. and you're having such a, I don't know, like a, a real deep time with it, I guess, is how you can describe it. And um yeah, that's that's pretty special, isn't it, when you can achieve that. Yeah. So I guess you get that right from the beginning when you take the photograph all the way through to when you process it. So what a lovely, uh, well, job. I wouldn't even think you're going to call it a job, <laughs> are you? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, technically, if, if you ask the, the tax authorities, it is my job, but it, it doesn't feel like any other job that I've ever had. It's not something that, you know, I set time aside to do this. And then when I'm off the job, I do other things. For me, it's just all life. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned that sense of loss of time, that that is definitely a characteristic of flow. But uh, another way that I like to think about it is sometimes when I'm finished doing something, I suddenly feel like I just woke up from a dream. Like I, I wasn't, mm. I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it really comes down to that mindful attitude of, of not, not just treating something as just something that I have to do, just a box that I need to check or a chore that I have to do, but an opportunity to experience something deep and meaningful. Mm, yeah, something that you can really give to people as well. It's really nice to do that. And um, what have you got a treasured photograph? I mean, if you have, what is it of? I'd love to know and why. Uh, th that's always a tough one for me to answer because it, it almost, it would change almost every time that you ask me mm. the question. So if I think about it right now, the, the, the one photograph that pops in my mind is I have this photograph of a, a, a small bush in autumn color in front of a, this dead remnant of a, of a tree that burned in a fire a couple of decades ago against the background of a mountain slope with other bushes in autumn colors. Wow. And 
I think for me, it's just, it ties into with whatever mood I'm feeling and the mood that is closest to the mood that I felt at the time that I made the photograph. So, you know, if you ask me a couple of hours from now or a couple of days from now, something else might bubble in my mind. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, choosing, choosing a, a favorite child or something. It's uh, there really <laughs> isn't one that I can point to and say, this is my all time favorite. Mm, yeah. And I notice how you, annotate your photographs as well with this sort of story behind it so I guess each mm -hmm. photograph you take there is always going to be a story behind it um for example this one is from a photograph called cottonwood tree growing in a deep pothole in a large sandstone dome mm -hmm. a monsoon thunderstorm approaches so that has everything right there for me um yeah. but your annotation for that one and I quote is and I this really I don't know this is this is quite profound for me it says um the person who told me about this place swore me to secrecy. It is within walking distance of a small town and this creek is its only water source. Walking alone in this narrow channel, the sound of gurgling water echoing off the walls was a peaceful and beautiful experience and is among my most cherished memories. I've had the pleasure of having this place to myself a few times over a period of a few years. Today, it is a well-known attraction and the town developed a paid parking area for it. I doubt one can walk alone in this canyon on any autumn day anymore. You must just love being alone in these places and absorbing the nature around you. And I totally get that. How do you feel about other people coming to admire these places and then taking that sort of being alone privilege away from you? Uh, th that is that is a very serious conundrum, and and I, I know exactly the image that you're talking about. And and uh, unfortunately for me, at least, there are several such places. And and I think that as a as a society, as a culture, th these are just things. These are resources that we don't think to protect. Things like solitude, things like peacefulness, things like quiet, just silence. Um, so yeah, these are definitely diminishing resources. And uh, and really, you know, that there's nothing we can do about population growing and more people wanting to see and experience things. But I think a lot of these people don't. Really realize how different their experience is from the way that experience was you know even months before or years before mm. before those places were known it's you know on some level you have to accept that it's inevitable that this will happen but uh, on the other hand you also feel lost places that i've known for you know 10 15 years you know places that were I would call them sanctuaries for me, where I would go and just specifically for that experience of just being completely remote and disconnected and quiet and mindful. And you can't do that anymore because they've been discovered and became popular, especially with photographers. Um, and, and now they might still look very much the same as they did to me, but the experience of being there is completely different now. Yeah. So almost like a bit of a grieving really for you. It is very much. And you know, there's, there's certainly a, a selfish aspect to that, but uh, I'm also thinking of uh, that that experience is not just lost to me. It, it's lost to everybody. Nobody ever again will be able to have that experience. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a shame. Um, I'll, I'll give you, I mean, I, and I think for a lot of people, they don't even realize what it is that they're missing because, you know, you're, most people today live in urban environment in environments that are noisy most people today never see you know a big open dark sky at night with millions and millions of stars and to me these are just such profound and, and moving experiences that that i i really lament the fact that that so many people will go their entire lives without feeling them um i'll give you an example i have a i have an app on my phone that measures the ambient sound level in in decibel 
and it's not rare for me is the places that I go sometimes on a very quiet day to just put my phone next to me and just be completely silent. And that reading is, you know, 20 dB or even less. And those are sound level that some people would never experience in their entire lives. It would always be higher than that. Uh, and I don't think that a lot of people recognize just how, I hate to use words like spiritual, but how emotionally deep that experience is of perfect silence of a big night sky of just being alone in a remote part of the desert. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I noticed because obviously with lockdown, many more people have been outside and walking because there wasn't huge amounts of choice about that. And um, there's a local place to us, actually, which during lockdown was just teeming with people completely understandably. But it's really sort of changed the landscape of it to a certain extent, you know, and hopefully it will start to sort of come back a little bit. But yeah, I really understand that. And But you also want those people to experience that which is what you're saying so it's a bit of a kind of mm -hmm. a 50 50 sort of situation and um i totally understand i'm very lucky where i live that i can look in the sky and see the stars and there isn't huge amounts of light pollution and i can go into a wood and there will be nobody there and i can't imagine my life without that and i'm Absolutely. presuming that you're exactly the same so that's obviously something within your personality you need to have that time away you need to have that quiet would you say that that's that's some part of who you are that you need that i would say it's an enormous part of who i am i, I literally spend most of my time alone the, the great majority of it whether i'm in my office which is in a structure separate from the main house uh, so i'm either alone in my office or i'm out alone in nature uh, or sometimes with my dog but usually i'm not around people for the great majority of the time mm. So let's discuss walking then, because I know that you are a long distance walker and backpacker, but that's more to get you to the places that you can't normally get to by car, isn't it? Not just for recreation. So what does this sort of walking element give you as part of that journey of what you do to get where you need to be? Do you sort of go set up camp? How does it work for you? Yes, but uh, part of it is, I think, very similar to yours, is that the, the walking itself, the time spent walking is, is very meditative for me. Uh, and I try to make myself mindful as I walk. But really, the point of me walking is to go very far into places where I can discover things, where I can be by myself, where I can commune with natural things, natural places. Uh, so yes, I, I usually drive out into the desert. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to live in this area that is very sparsely populated. There's a lot of dirt road here that just go into the uh, proverbial middle of nowhere. Uh, so I can go and find a, a quiet campsite usually. Um, I can either camp by my vehicle and then I have the luxury of being able to, to cook and then a comfortable place to sleep. But every now and then I'll just put a, a pack on my back and I'll just walk for a few miles, sometimes for several days and just to find uh, different places to, to, to live, to be part of different natural communities. So uh, Oftentimes, I won't even have a tent. You know, one of the nice things about this desert is you can go into these big canyons that have these large alcoves. They're they're almost cave-like, or you can go in and be protected from the element and just put a you know a tarp on the ground and a sleeping bag, a sleeping pad, and sleeping bag, and just spend a few days there by yourself. You know, being part of that environment, being part of that community, uh, learning the the patterns of you know when birds wake up in the morning and when the sun goes out at night and how the light bounces off different elements in the land and just being there for a few days. For me, that is a very, very deeply meaningful experience beyond just any photographs that I might make. Uh, and of course, some of these places, the only way to have these experiences is to walk several miles to get into them. Oh, that just sounds amazing. I want to do that right now. I mean, nature, I think, when you're listening to it and experiencing it, um, I think is 
something that really speaks to you it becomes part of you because we really take ourselves out of nature generally don't mm-hmm. we we're in the house we have heating or, or air conditioning or wherever depending on where you live and to get out there in the natural world it is a completely different environment that sounds a really obvious thing to say but it's not just about what you look at is it it's about how you feel and how it enriches you from within would you say Yes, uh, it's more than that, actually. It puts you in, in context that you're not used to being. So, for example, you could walk for however long and, and sit down for a minute, and then you realize that as soon as you go silent, as, as soon as you stop walking, you realize very, very obviously that for all that time you've been walking, you've been the noisiest thing around. And it's it's almost an embarrassment to realize just how much noise you were making, because as soon as you stop making noise, the whole world just falls silent. Um it you may, it makes you realize your, your place in, in the world, your place among the, the living community. Uh, it, it's um, you know I, I would say it's a form of humility maybe, uh, but it, it just gives you a sense of just how fleeting and small and temporary you are. And I think that that's a feeling that people are not used to. People are used to feeling in control, or at least knowing that their environment are controlled by other people for their safety and for their welfare. And then all of a sudden you're just part of this big world, and it's up to you to take care of yourself and to be a good a good steward of that place Uh, and uh, you know if you rise to that challenge you learn a lot about yourself in that process it makes you feel like you're part of all of it and not just you know somebody who goes in for a visit and I think that even people who do go on hikes to natural places often they never give up that mindset of you know everything is controlled I know exactly what I'm doing I know where I'm going to be I know where I'm going to turn around where I'm going to come back and they never really connect with that greater environment in a larger sense for me sometimes it takes a couple of days of being in a place before I can feel like I'm no longer just a visitor there I'm now part of it Mm. It's very humbling, isn't it, as well? And it's absolutely something yes. that, yeah, it, just by sitting down and spending that time, and I think you do need to spend the time. It's not a case of within five minutes, you know, or even if you go for a walk for half an hour, that's brilliant. And, I, and I'm advocating that for everyone. But I think that extra time, and especially alone, it makes all the difference. Um, I remember as a child, wanting to go off and just live in the woods and I just mm-hmm. had this thought that I could set up I don't know some tree branches or something and make a camp and I was convinced that I wouldn't get wet and I wouldn't get cold and everything I didn't even think about that and I mm-hmm. kind of think that disappears a lot from our lives when we get older and we take jobs and we're in our houses etc and we forget how being connected to nature can really allow us to question ourselves can't it yes yes and and it's it's sometimes uh, the longer like i said the longer you live in, in the human manufactured world the, the hardest it is to make that switch out of that mindset to realize that you really are part of this bigger thing that's out there uh and for me it's just a I wouldn't call it a pleasant feeling because there's also an element of anxiety and fear to it, but that that's really the essence of, of awe. It's the essence of, you know, what philosophers call the sublime is that it's not just immense beauty. It's also immense danger. I think, uh, um, forgot who it was, uh, who, who defined the sublime originally. He, he actually said that the, the, at the core of the sublime is this feeling of terror of, you know, not just something that's incredibly beautiful, but also something that could 
mm. you know, crush you. Mm. Um, and that that's what elicits that sense of awe. But it's it's extremely powerful. And I think that that element of being uncomfortable and scary is an essential part of it. Uh, and, and you have to consciously put that into context of, of what, what you're doing and, and your your existence, your presence there. Yeah, part of the bigger picture. So but you were a wilderness guide, weren't you? So what did that entail? That sounds like a dream job. Uh, well, as it turns out, it might be, but it wasn't for me because I'm extremely introverted and reclusive. So for me, it almost prevented me from experiencing the places that I was okay. guiding other people into. Um, not, not that I didn't enjoy it. I mean, as far as, far as jobs go to earn a living, that, that would be my 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 second, my penultimate uh, kind of occupation. But uh, now that I found a way where I could earn a living as a writer and as a photographer, and I can be in these places by myself, mm. uh, to me, that is preferable. But uh, yeah, a lot, a lot obviously depends on the people that you're guiding and how well you can communicate to them that that sense of reverence for the place, that that sense of interest in the things that are in the place. And so part of it is, you know, knowing the, the natural history of places, knowing how to anticipate things. Uh, people respond to that very much when you introduce them to things like, well, this, this plant here, this is what it's called, and this is what you can do with it. And this plant is edible. And this bird over there, you know, pollinates that plant over there. And just having them take part in that story and all of a sudden see the world in a way that they're not used to it's not just a collection of things that may be pretty or not pretty or comfortable or not comfortable but they're actually understand the cycles of these things the, the living patterns around them and how it all comes together that whole tapestry of the the, the ecosystem uh, i think that makes it interesting to people and as a guide when i used to guide that to me was one of the most rewarding things is you suddenly see that that click in someone's mind where it's like oh now i understand something now i have more insight into how this place works uh, and to me that was very rewarding and people that respond very positively to that that makes you as a guide feel so much better it's like i, I was able to open somebody's eyes to, to something that they would not have experienced otherwise yeah yeah and a really lovely responsibility to have as well and do you mm. think that's why then you moved more into writing was that your catalyst for writing you wanted to share all of this but you preferred to write it down uh, yeah. So again, going back to my introverted nature, that is sort of a, I would call it a, in, in, in technology, it's called an asynchronous form of communication where it's mm -hmm. not just, I tell you something and you tell me something back and I can write something and put it out there. And at some point somebody is going to read it and they might respond to it. So it's not a direct interaction, uh, which for me is, is more comfortable a and B it, it gives me a more, uh, a broader canvas to paint on so I, I can describe my experiences more richly than I could you know in, in a quip or in a short conversation or in a specific situation where things may or may not be ideal uh, so yeah in writing that gives me a, a much much bigger much bigger um, array a much bigger medium to, to express these things yeah and I guess if um like you say, being introverted, you don't necessarily want to communicate verbally all of the time. That's quite draining, isn't it, for an introvert like yourself? So I guess it gives you time to be able to sit back and think about what you want to write and, and put it all down and rather than maybe perhaps missing things out or not feeling comfortable with that situation. So it's the perfect thing to do, isn't it? Uh, yes, and, and and you really pinpointed the that that key difference between people who are introverted and extroverted is is that energy that that draining effect. It's not that one kind of person likes other people more than the other kind. It's just that for an introvert, there's a lot of conscious effort invested in communication and interacting with other people. And after a while, you just run out of steam. You just can't keep it up. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not something you need, is it? I guess that's why you 
you like to be on your own to get everything from the environment it, you can just suck that right in and that's it it's just for mm -hmm. you you don't have to t tell anybody else about it it's just for you that's really good but do you have um a daily routine i mean or is everything completely different every day and you just kind of see how it unfolds yeah i'm i'm, I'm the i'm the anti-planner i have no routine at all uh, unless you know in a rare case that i would have something scheduled then that's what i'll be doing but otherwise i pretty much wake up in the morning and there's five or six or ten different things on my to-do list and i'll just pick the one that i want to do that day and if nothing is urgent i can just go out for a walk oh we all need to do that don't we so do you go out for walks then if you're not going on a shoot do you just take yourself off anyway oh absolutely i, I spend about half my time outside sometimes some years more than that and uh really what i do is i will set up camp for several days and some days i'll go for walks and some days i'll sit around camp and write or read or do other things uh so i can actually do my quote-unquote work uh from almost anywhere unless i literally need to speak with someone or interact directly with someone which is generally not the case and how does the weather affect you over there because obviously you've got a lot of heat there and presumably it gets very cold. So how does that affect your camping, your trips? What, what happens there? Yeah, so, so my, the area that I live in is high desert, which means very extreme temperatures. So it's very hot in the summer, extremely cold in the winter. So we get we get huge snows here in the winter, and then we get the days that are you know 100 plus degrees Fahrenheit, 40 degrees Celsius or more in the summer. Uh, so yeah, very much uh, yeah, dealing with the temperature extremes is just is just something that you have to gain to become skilled at in order to to live here and to do what I do. But you 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 learn the pattern, you learn how to dress appropriately, you learn how to make sure that you you're sufficiently warm, sufficiently hydrated have enough food uh yeah those are just skills that evolve and at some point they just become routine uh but yeah for it it can be very uncomfortable for someone who just does it once or twice here and there and doesn't really know how to do it but for me it's i'm just used to it i just know when i go out what more or less the weather forecast is going to be and i'm prepared for it i have all the right equipment i have the right clothing uh and times when it gets really really cold uh, i have a, a, a truck camper on my pickup truck so i can i can just stay quote unquote indoors it's not really indoors but uh, i have a, a heater or you know if it's not as cold and i might have a little campfire or it's if it's warm i could have a, a little fan going or uh yeah so you you, you sort of learn to, to work through that because that's it, it's nature it's not a controlled environment you just have to accept that and and make yourself as comfortable as you can so you're a bit of a survivalist then really you've got all the gear and uh in a sense you know i'm not going to go you know live by myself in the desert and uh, you know kill my food with stone tools or anything like that but uh yeah it's it's just you just it, equipment outdoor equipment today is is so good um that it's it it's a lot easier than it used to be yeah yeah so you've written three books now and obviously oh you do other writing as well you contribute to mm -hmm. magazines and things like that and obviously your photographs are amazing and you're still photographing all the time so but what's next for you do you have any plans or is everything just kind of organic for you uh, it is for pretty organic, and that's one thing that I've learned is, um, A, um, I don't just dislike planning. I'm not a very good planner. As a, even if I think I know where I'm going a year later, I look back and things are completely different from what I expected them to be. So, uh, yeah, I, I just try not to overthink it. Uh, you know, I, I do what, what feels right, and, you know, even if everything in my life stays pretty much the same for the next 20 years, I would definitely not be unhappy about it. Um, so, yeah, I'm just staying open to whatever may come. Oh, that's lovely. I think we should all be a bit more like that. Okay, so the stepping out question then, Guy. If you could walk anywhere with anyone, with us or past, famous or not, who would that person be? Where would you walk and what do you think you'd ask them? 
So that is a bit of a challenging question for me because I deliberately go out for walks <laughs> to to get away from, from most people. So yeah, I'm not sure that I would necessarily enjoy having somebody along with me right there for a conversation. But as I walk, I sometimes have these virtual conversations with people, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm. I admire people who are who are wise, people who are great philosophers, great scientists, great writers, and so I often imagine what they would think about something or what they might say about something. And the, the range for me is really any philosophically minded person, great scientists, great philosophers, great thinkers. I I just I would love to get some insight into their mind, not necessarily chat with them while I'm walking. Mm. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people that I would like to have these virtual conversations. Give with. It, give us one of your favorites, then. Go on. Oh my goodness. Uh, let's see. I would love to speak with people like Albert Einstein or Erwin oh. Schrodinger or, uh, you know, even people like Kurt Gödel, who was one of the great logicians. Uh, uh, going back, maybe philosophers, I would love to have conversations with uh, the likes of Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or even Kant or Hume. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that I find who, whose writings I find very interesting and that I would like to pick their brain on specific topics, questions that I have that are not necessarily answered in the writing. But for me, I just like to be around really smart people who can teach me things that I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day about how you can often feel like you have people on your shoulder sometimes mm -hmm. you know you, you yeah. refer to them as you're thinking about things and oh, what would so-and-so say and it could be anybody it could be a family member or it could be a friend or somebody that you just sort of chat with a work colleague and and I think everybody has these different people for different mm -hmm. situations so I guess for, for you that's kind of what it's like when you're having those conversations do you have them out loud or do you have them in your head no, not not out loud in my head, and and just as as you know, I just had a couple of seconds to think about it. As, as someone for me who is a combination of all these things, the, the science and the philosophy, would be someone like Bertrand Russell, for example, um, would be extremely interesting for me to have a, a conversation with. Yeah, I think you need to get them all in a room by the sounds of it. Or not in a room, actually, out in nature. <laughs> yeah, actually, I suspect a lot of them were pretty introverted too. Can you imagine if they were all together? That would be a very interesting set of people to be with. Uh, either that or a very awkward silence. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, Guy, I'd like to end our time with this quote from you, please. And it's this. I fear that future generations will judge us harshly for our failure to place proper value on wildness, diversity, open space, spirit, solitude and other treasures of the natural world still available to us today. May they at least know that some of us tried. I really hope we've talked enough about this today for others to be inspired to value the nature that we have in the world. And I've placed all the contact and book information for you in the episode description. But for now, Guy, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been really enlightening and a hugely creative conversation. And I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thank you very much, Kaz. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Guy. And thank you, Guy, for allowing us into your world of creativity, art and nature. It was super interesting. I hope you enjoyed your walk today or whatever other cheeky thing you were getting up to whilst indulging in this podcast and that you managed to take some time for you. I have a twisty camera, as I like to call it, and I invested in a zoom lens too a number of years ago and I've been thinking recently that I might just resurrect it and go out to take some proper photographs. So I'm off to find that and to the woods and to grab some tree shots. Thank you as always for listening everyone. Do like, subscribe, rate and share this podcast to others. There are so many podcasts in the world and so it helps if you do that so others can listen to these stories as well. 
So all that remains to say is have a lovely day or evening and I look forward to having you along next time.